Well, we are going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Uh, for those that may not have been here last week, we began a new series on the book of Acts, starting in chapter 1, obviously. So we'll be in chapter 2 this week. I don't know how closely you've been following the news over the last couple of weeks, but some of you may have caught the news that a man named Oliver Sacks passed away about a week, week and a half ago. Many of you may know that name, and uh, most of you will not. Oliver Sacks was a neurologist and an author. He wrote a book called Awakenings that was then turned into a movie starring Robin Williams in 1990. Many more of you will perhaps be familiar with the movie starring Robin Williams. The premise of the book and of the movie is about Dr. Sachs, who uh, is, like I said, a neurologist in the late 1960s in New York, and he is working with some patients at a hospital who are catatonic because of an encephalitis infection that they suffered as children, most of them. So uh, they cannot respond to the world, really. They can't walk. They can't really move. They cannot speak. Uh, By all outer appearances, they are dead to the world, not conscious of what's happening. But in the course of the movie, he discovers that by administering a drug to them called L-DOPA, he can actually bring them back to life. And so in what is really a miracle of modern medicine, many of these men and women, some of whom had been catatonic for 25 or 30 years, began to experience the world again. Uh, If you haven't seen the movie, it is worth checking out. Uh, I'm not going to share with you the end of the movie, although it is 25 years old, so that'd be within my rights. It's not really a spoiler at this point. Uh, But if you haven't seen it, uh, it is worth looking into. But every time I see the movie or think about that story, I always think about that concept of what would it be like to really be dead to the world, to really be dead and then experience this rebirth this coming back to life. Some of you are thinking that happens to me every morning when I drink my first cup of coffee, right? I wake up, I have hollow eyes, a dead heart, right? An angry soul, and then I drink coffee, and my eyes are brightened, and I'm alive again to the world. That transition from death to life, it's really no big stretch to say that that is what the early church, the first century church, experienced when the Holy Spirit came to them on the day of Pentecost. The men and women who had traveled with Jesus and learned from Jesus over the course of his three-year ministry, they had witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. They had seen Jesus alive. They were gripped by the message that their Savior now had died and risen again, and then he ascended into heaven. But it wasn't really until the day of Pentecost that the church was born because at that moment the Spirit of God came upon them so powerfully that men who were previously fearful became bold. Men who were previously confused suddenly became very clear about what they believed. And the message of Jesus Christ began to move throughout the ancient world in powerful ways. Uh, It was accompanied by miracles, by signs and wonders. It was accompanied by bold preaching. In fact, in the book of Acts, uh, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, a a huge portion of the book of Acts involves speeches or sermons of the apostles, Peter and Stephen and Paul, men who proclaimed the message of Jesus boldly, where previously they were unable. Previously, they were essentially dead to the spiritual reality of who God was and what he was doing in Jesus Christ. And then when the Spirit came, they were alive. 
the church itself, the first century church and all churches are founded by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who gives power to the church apart from the Spirit's power. We are just men and women sitting in a room on a Sunday morning. But when the Spirit moves mightily in God's people, he does supernatural things. And what you see as you walk throughout the rest of the book of Acts is how the Spirit of God takes this message. And as these men and women in the early church are responsive to God's leading through the Spirit, he takes that message and it spreads and it grows because they put themselves into a position where they can hear and obey the Spirit of God. So the big question for you and me this morning as we walk through Acts 2 is will you and I put ourselves in a position to hear the Spirit of God and to respond to the Spirit of God? Will we as a church be the type of church that is willing to listen to the Spirit's voice and follow where He leads? Because, of course, programs are great and buildings are great and all of the equipment we have here is fantastic. But in the final analysis, the foundation of the church is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and then the power of the church is the Holy Spirit. And so the question for us as a church is, will we be a church that follows the lead of the Spirit as we take the message of Jesus Christ into our community and into our world? And what we're going to see in Acts 2 is that if we will put ourselves in position for the Spirit to move, the Spirit will move. Not necessarily in the exact same way as he did in the early church, in the first century church, but he will move. Right? Because, of course, Jesus says nobody knows where the Spirit comes from, where he's going. He acts on his own agenda, according to his own timeline, in his own ways. But he does act in the hearts and the lives of men and women who trust Jesus. So we'll look at Acts chapter 2 as we see how the Holy Spirit moves in the church and ask how can we submit ourselves to the Spirit's leading. Look at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language, to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. All right, so here's what's going on. The Holy Spirit begins to provide God's presence to the church. Now, to set the stage for what's happening here, you have to remember, before Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus had actually promised to the apostles that he would not leave them alone. All right, you remember, one of their concerns was, Jesus, if you go away, what's going to happen to us? What are we going to do 
when you leave, if you die, as Jesus began to talk about his death and then his resurrection and his going to the Father, they go, what are we going to do without you? And Jesus had said to them in John 14, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And in Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, remember he told the disciples, you guys go to Jerusalem and wait. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So now 10 days after his ascension, they are in Jerusalem and it is the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is one of the three pilgrimage feasts of the Jews. All of the Jews from all over the ancient world would travel to Jerusalem if they were able to celebrate Pentecost, which was the harvest feast, 50 days after Passover. So they're all together from all over the world and they're gathered together to celebrate this feast and they're in a house and all of a sudden this two things happen, a sound like a mighty rushing wind and then secondly, tongues of fire come upon them. Now we want to break those down real quick. Why a sound like a mighty rushing wind? That is because all the way throughout the Bible, the Spirit of God is likened to breath or wind. The sound of the wind is a symbol that God's presence is with them. In fact, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament and the Greek word in the New Testament for spirit, uh, both are words that mean wind or breath. Now, why is that? Well, you think about it. How do you know that a person is alive, right? Now, I realize with modern medicine, there may be all kinds of ways. You could look at brain activity. You could listen to their heart. There may be all kinds of ways, but just looking at a person, how do you know if they're alive? (sighs) Are they breathing, right? Are they breathing? As long as a person has breath, they have their spirit. And as you walk through the scripture, the spirit of God is the person of the Trinity who gives spiritual life and spiritual breath to God's people. In John 20, after Jesus' resurrection, before he ascended into heaven, you know what he did? He gathered the disciples together, and he says he breathed on them. Ever think that's weird? You ever think they're like, why are you breathing on me, man? And what does he say? Receive the Holy Spirit, the breath of God. Because as Jesus departs, the breath of God moves into his people, and revitalizes them, brings them from death to life. Jesus had likened the Spirit of God to the wind in John chapter 3. And here's what he said. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Those who are enlivened by the Spirit, uh, they move in unpredictable ways because the Spirit moves in unpredictable ways because the Spirit moves according to God's agenda and not according to man's agenda. So think about the wind. You don't know where it came from. You may be able to get a direction, but ultimately you go, where did the wind come from? You can't see it, but you see its effects. I don't know if you've ever had an experience where the wind has almost carried you away. It was so strong. Uh, I can remember... Several years ago, Shannon and I left church and there was a storm that, that had blown up while we were in church. And so I went out to the car to get the umbrella to go back inside so that I could help my family get to the car. And I got out to the car and I grabbed the umbrella and the wind was so strong that as soon as I started to open that umbrella, the wind grabbed it and flipped it upside down, right? And I had it like this. 
And I was out in the parking lot, and I was trying to keep a control of this umbrella, and I see my family watching me through the window, and I'm getting pulled along, and I imagine the last thing my young daughter's going to see is Daddy flying off into the air, right? Goodbye, right? It'll be a memory she has for the rest of her life. And I looked like an idiot as I twirled around with this five-pound umbrella and could not get it under control for several moments until I finally did. The wind can direct and move us in ways that appear unpredictable and out of control because it has its own agenda. That's what Jesus says about the Spirit of God. And it's what happens to these men and women at Pentecost. The Spirit of God comes in, and all of a sudden, you're going to see Peter begin to speak boldly. You're going to see people who had saved their possessions probably for their whole lives begin to give them away. You'll see people who were opposed to Jesus Christ begin to trust him because the Spirit moves where he will and he directs God's people as he desires. The other thing that happens is tongues of fire appear above their heads and they begin to speak in other tongues. The fire almost certainly is a symbol of God's presence to speak among them. Think of the most prominent time in the scripture that you see fire in connection with God's voice. What is it? The burning bush. Moses stands before a burning bush and God speaks to Moses and gives him a commission to go lead God's people away from Egypt. And so God's presence is symbolized both by wind and fire. And what begins to happen is the people around see the unpredictability, see the power of God's spirit, and they're bewildered. In fact, some of them assume that this has to be drunkenness. The only time that people act like they are out of control of their faculties is when they've been drinking. Now, Peter's going to point out in a minute, it's just nine in the morning on a feast day. So nobody's been drinking. But the power of the Spirit is such that it moves these people along. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit is not simply a force. The Holy Spirit is God with them. We baptize when we baptize in the name of what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he always refers to the Spirit as he rather than it. Some of us may have been twisted a bit. Our minds may have been warped by Star Wars, right? So when we think about the Spirit, we think of the force, some sort of powerful force. And there are non-Christian cults that believe that the Spirit is not fully God or is not a person, right? But the Spirit is God. He lives in us. He moves in us. He is God's presence with God's people to direct God's people where they ought to go. And what's beautiful about the first century church is they follow the lead of the Spirit as he moves. And they recognize that God does not leave them alone, but is now with them through the person of the Spirit. So the Spirit provides God's presence to the church. The second thing the Spirit does is shines the spotlight right onto Jesus. Start in verse 14. We're going to read a few verses uh, down through verse 40. We're not going to read all those verses, but a number of them. But Peter taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day or nine in the morning. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. 
And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter begins and he makes no bones about the fact that the reason all of this is happening is directly because of Jesus. He goes all the way back to Old Testament prophecy, particularly here to Joel 2. And he says, remember, Joel prophesied this, that the Spirit would come, people would prophesy, there would be signs and wonders. Ultimately, the day of judgment will come when Jesus will return and establish his kingdom on earth. And Peter says, that time is beginning right now. And it begins right now because of what Jesus did. Jesus performed signs and wonders. He died And in the greatest miracle of all, he rose again. He ascended to the Father. And later in this passage, Peter will say, then he sent the Spirit. And what you see right now is proof that the last days have begun. And now all we're waiting for is for him to come back and set up his kingdom. And in the meanwhile, we share the good news. Peter will go on, and throughout the rest of this passage, he talks about the covenant that God made with King David. And he says, remember, God made a covenant with David that he would raise up one of his descendants to sit on the throne of Israel. He says, David, praising God in Psalm 16, says, God, thank you that you don't let my soul decay in Hades forever. And then Peter says, but you know what? David is in the grave. There's his grave. You can see his grave. But Jesus is alive. David was talking about our day. And so what the miracles of the Spirit accomplish is they shine a spotlight directly onto Jesus. See, Peter doesn't turn around and go, wow, that's amazing that you can speak other languages, right? Let's set up a show and charge money for that. Now, that's amazing that miracles are beginning to happen. We could probably do something with it. Instead, Peter says, no, here's why the miracles and signs are happening. They are not happening simply so we can look and say, wow, look at these miracles and signs. They are happening so men and women will see that God is here because of what Jesus did. And the day has arrived when God's kingdom is now working among us and in us until the fulfillment of it comes when Jesus returns. How many of you watched the Aggie game last night? Yeah, most of you. Okay, good game, right? Uh, I'm sure that you loved watching the uh, defense play, great defense, uh, the offense, you know, and and all of the, uh, 
all of the game. I mean, it was great, right? We won 38 to 17, so you can't complain. I mean, great game. And uh, I'm sure you had a a lot of conversations as you're watching the game with friends and with family about the game. Uh, You probably had conversations about it this morning, maybe even on the way to church, maybe even once you got here. And I wonder how many of you in the midst of those conversations had any discussion of the lighting crew that was there at the game. Anybody? I mean, the stadium has some amazing lights. Did you guys notice? Nobody noticed. Nobody noticed the lights that cost how much? Probably hundreds of thousands of dollars that did their job all night long. And you didn't notice them. Now, why did you not notice them? Uh, Because they were doing their job. What is their job? To shine light onto the field so you can see the players playing the game. Uh, It would be a little weird if the first thing you started talking about was the lights or the lighting crew instead of the game. It'd be even weirder if the lighting crew decided to do a cool light show on the field during the game, wouldn't it? (laughs) Because that's not their job. Now, if the lights went out, you notice. A couple years ago at the Super Bowl, some of you will remember, the lights went out. And you can't see the game. You can't play. They're critical to the experience you have. But you don't talk about them, think about them, emphasize them, because their job is to shine a light on what's happening on the field. Similarly, in the scripture, the Spirit's job is to glorify and shine his light on Jesus Christ. And so that is why uh, we do not put a great deal of emphasis on our signs and wonders going to happen this morning, our amazing things going to happen this morning. What are the cool tricks that we can do through the Spirit? Instead, we come in and we say, we want to put our hearts and our minds and our bodies in a place where we worship Jesus Christ. And his Spirit will move among us as he pleases. And if that means miracles, if that means signs and wonders, so be it. If it means that men and women hear the good news that Jesus died and rose again, then that is the greatest miracle of all. And so we emphasize Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit. Jesus even said, John chapter 16, 13 to 14, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now look at this. He will not speak on his own authority, But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Right? That's the job of the Holy Spirit. John will say later in 1 John 4 that a distinguishing mark of whether a spirit is from God or from Satan is whether that spirit confesses what? Jesus Christ is Lord. The mark is of a spirit-filled church is a church that constantly shines the spotlight onto Jesus Christ and says we are here to exalt Jesus Christ. We are here to proclaim Jesus Christ. We are here to see men and women come to know that Jesus died for their sins and rose again so they can have life. And wherever the Spirit leads us to share that message, we will go. Whatever the Spirit asks of us to share that message, we will do. Because he leads God's people as he desires. And so often there are moments in the midst of our programs, in the midst of our services, where the Spirit moves in directions we didn't anticipate. I could tell you story after story of men and women who have come up a week or two after I have preached and said, 
when you said X, Y, and Z, that changed my life, and it led to me walking with God in a new way, and they walk away, and I think, I didn't say that. Or I didn't say it the way you heard it. Because the Spirit was speaking to their heart in a way that was different from what I was speaking. And so the people of God are people who shine the spotlight on Jesus and allow the Spirit to move as he will. So the Spirit provides God's presence among his people. The Spirit shines the spotlight on Jesus. And then thirdly, we see that the Spirit makes the church effective. Look at uh, verses 41 to 47 for a moment. And before we, actually, before I read 41 to 47, I want to say this, that in response to Peter's sermon, Peter ends the sermon by saying, look, you guys crucified your, your Messiah, and he rose again. You've rejected him. And they, in fear, go, uh-oh, right? What should we do? Peter's response is, you repent and be baptized for the, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right, we're going to spend a whole sermon next week on that verse. Because that verse, I think, is one of the most difficult and most misunderstood in the book of Acts. Peter lays out to them fundamentally, if I were to summarize it this morning, though, fundamentally it is this, that you turn from your denial of Jesus Christ to a belief in Jesus Christ that he is the Savior of the world. And you trust in him, and you're baptized to indicate your belief in him. So Peter asked them to respond. We'll talk in detail about that verse next week. But look at what you see then in verse 41. So then those who had received his word, in other words, those who responded as he asked, were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls or 3,000 people. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think quite often we're tempted to believe that the effectiveness of a church is directly related to how good a preacher or worship band they have or how comfortable it is or how great the kids' programming is or how slick the building or their printed materials or their website or whatever it may be. But what we see in the first century church is they had none of that stuff. And yet look what God does. 3,000 people in one day came to know Jesus. They begin sharing their possessions. They begin worshiping him together. Those who are looking on from the outside go, what is happening amongst these people? It's interesting to read not only in the New Testament, but actually first and second century descriptions of Christian communities from pagan men and women who observed them. And quite often they are absolutely befuddled with these people. They won't worship the emperor. They gather together, and they take bread together as a group, and they think maybe that's some sort of secret club, but we can't find anything they're doing wrong. And they love one another, and they treat one another as brothers and sisters, even though they're not related. 
and they scratch their heads and they say, what happened? And what happened was the Spirit of God empowers the church and makes the church effective. I want to be clear, buildings and sound systems and lights and air conditioning, those can help us to do our work efficiently and to do our work well. But fundamentally, for the church to work, you know what we need? We need people who believe in Jesus, and we need the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit begins to move, and he helps that church develop leadership. He draws men and women to Christ, and he moves them to be like Jesus and to serve God. Quite often, when I perform a wedding ceremony, either the bride or the groom or both become quite distressed and worried about details. Uh, What if there are not enough boutonnieres for all of the groomsmen? What if the flowers wilt on the way over? What if Uncle Ned drinks a little too much and says something inappropriate to Grandma Rita, right? (laughs) And they begin to worry about all of these details. Will my musicians be there at the right time, in the right place? And I see all of this stress, and quite often in the midst of all that stress, one of the things that I encourage them to remember is this. No matter what happens, when the day is over, you will be married. You know why? Because fundamentally, we just need the two of you and me to officiate and pronounce you husband and wife. I'll be there. And I'm assuming you will too. Boil it down to its simplest elements. See, all of the accoutrements we have are gifts from God. But ultimately, he can do his work without any of it. Sometimes I find that comforting when we are worshiping in a cafeteria. Because the Spirit of God can move in a field in a cafeteria, in a large building, in a small building, in a living room, in a house, if there are men and women gathered together who believe in Jesus and are submissive to the movement of the Spirit. And so the question for us to ask as a church is, will we be a place wherever we gather, whatever programs we have or do not have, or events we have or do not have, will we be a people who listen to the leading of the Spirit and put ourselves in a position to obey Him. Because it is He who founds the church and makes it effective and provides God's presence among us. So you say, how do I put myself into a position where the Spirit can move, where the Spirit can be effective? Well, first of all, you have to know Jesus. It may be that you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again to forgive you of your sin, of all of the things that you have done, all of the things that you have done that are disobedient and offensive to God's perfection. God gave his son to die in your place so you would not have to die and then Jesus rose again. He defeated all your sin. He defeated death. And he's alive. He ascended into heaven and he sent his spirit. And all who trust in him, the spirit will live within them and cleanse them of all their sin and give them power to know God and obey him. 
So putting ourselves in a position for the Spirit to speak begins there. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ this morning, I exhort you that this is the day that God is calling you for that. If you have, then how do we put ourselves in a position on an ongoing basis for the Spirit to speak? What happens is we read His Word. As we eliminate some distractions in our lives and we focus on the Word of God and we ask the Spirit to teach us about what Jesus said. It happens as we pray, as we ask, like James said, for God to give us wisdom. It happens as we worship, as we gather together with other men and women who know Jesus Christ, who will encourage us and build into our lives and speak words of truth. It happens as we celebrate Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection together. And so we consistently put ourselves in a position for the Spirit to speak. So we don't pray or read the Scripture or worship just for the sake of going through those motions, but we do those things so we can know God through Jesus Christ, so that when God wants to move and direct us to share the gospel, to engage in missions, to serve others, to fulfill the great commandment, we're ready to go because we hear his voice. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion, and as the men begin to gather uh, the communion elements and come forward, here's the question I want us to focus on this morning. Will you and I listen to the Holy Spirit and follow his direction for our lives? Will we listen to the Spirit's voice and follow his direction for our lives? Because fundamentally, that is what will make us a church that is effective in the service of Jesus Christ. It's fundamentally what will make us a church able to fulfill the great commission and the great commandment. Uh, When we celebrate communion, we are remembering what Jesus did on our behalf, that he died for us and that he rose again. We are celebrating the opportunity to worship together, just as the first century church did, and we are remembering that the same Spirit that unites us together this morning united, unites us with them, because we confess the same God, the same Savior, and we have the same Spirit. So if you know Jesus this morning, whether you're a member of grace or not, you're welcome to participate in communion with us as we celebrate what Jesus has done as we ask for the Spirit to move among us. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for this time. And we pray as we prepare to celebrate communion that we would do so with hearts and minds focused on Jesus Christ. We pray that you would make us a people submissive to the voice of the Spirit, that we would put ourselves in position to hear from him. We thank you for all that Jesus did for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.